listening to On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. On Air is back for another week. I am Israel Fair, staff editor at The Athletic. He's Alex Blair, former feature producer at Hockey Night in Canada. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair. Alex's handle is the Alex Blair. No guest on today's show, so let's get right into the sports headlines. Pretty busy week, Alex. Where do you want to start? Let's actually switch things up this week, Izzy. Let's uh, let's start on the pitch uh, across the Atlantic with European soccer. Um, probably the biggest story that we've had in international sports in quite a while. The yeah, sort of cre- the creation and very quick demise <laughs> of this European Super League. First off, I know you're a big Arsenal fan. They were one of the sort of dirty six European clubs that yep. got into bed with this league. For people that don't know the story, why don't you set the scene on what transpired this week and what these 12 clubs were attempting to do and why it created such a huge backlash across Europe, but also across the entire global sporting community? Sure. I'll try to keep this pretty tight uh, because, as you said, Alex, it, it unraveled so quickly and the emotions were so high. Uh, the short version of the story is that the six biggest brand teams, if you will, in the English Premier League, the three biggest brand teams in Spain and the three biggest brand teams in Italy uh, put forth a league and teamed up to basically uh, give themselves the ability to play against each other uh, more so than they do now. And it was the way that it's it was you know presented was as a super league that uh, would maintain these 12 teams, six from England, three from Spain, and three from Italy, uh, all the biggest teams in the world. So from, from England, Manchester United, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, Spain, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Italy, Juventus, and the two teams in Milan, Inter Milan and AC Milan. And, and we're talking uh, about the, gl- the global powers. Yeah, the biggest soccer. brands in uh, international soccer. And uh, the two teams sort of missing from that, maybe three teams, uh, Bayern Munich in Germany, Borussia Dortmund in Germany, and PSG, Paris Saint-Germain uh, in France. They were already, when there were rumors around this time last week, so on Saturday of last week, that was uh, the rumors were already spinning out that this was going to be announced pretty soon and that those teams had... Um, either not taken part in the negotiations or opted out at some point. Uh, but the announcement was made, uh, I believe, late on the weekend, late Sunday night. And immediately the reaction was hostile. And there are so many layers and pressure points uh, that caused that reaction uh, that also led those teams to make the decision in the first place that are really fascinating and really Uh, speak to the core of uh, the economic and financial viability of like the highest level of soccer right now. Uh, But speaking just to the reaction, the fans in England, uh, especially, uh, I think some of the fans in the other countries as well, were just disgusted, really, to put Mm. it to put it fairly with the actions of the owners of these clubs, uh, because they just did not feel like it was sporting. Uh, they felt like it was as overt a commercialization of the sport that they love. Um, and, and there's and, a and lot of like we... competition standpoint because of it. That's the think the biggest reason. We saw protests, and uh, immediately, you know, within 48 hours, clubs were started to drop out. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning. Like, I think we need to give context. Soccer fans will know this, but. The way European soccer is set up is that there are domestic leagues. So yeah. the English Premier League, 
they play themselves all year. This was not going to be in contrast of that. No. But there's also what's called sort of midweek European fixtures, yeah. where whether it's in the UEFA Champions League or the UEFA Europa League, mm -hmm. um, teams that qualify for that tournament will play each other midweek in the Champions League or Europa yep. League. And so that's where you'll have a team from England playing a team from Spain. Yep. Or you'll have a team from Italy playing a team from Germany. This Super League was going to be in competition with that Champions League. That's right. So the bi the biggest 12 teams in Europe had basically said, we're not going to play in your league anymore. We're going to create our own league, yep. which we are guaranteed a spot in each year. And we can maximize our re revenue from that. Whereas right now, um, you have to qualify each year for the Champions League based on your results in your domestic league. Yep. And so a team like, for example, Manchester United, who is a global powerhouse and one of the biggest teams in England, uh, they've fallen on some tough times and they haven't qualified for the Champions League every year. Yep, same and with Arsenal. Huge, uh, Liverpool's yeah. in seventh place right now. So even though they had an amazing season last year, they were in no guarantee to get back into the Champions League. And that's... Uh, that's a big part of the domestic leagues. And it is interesting because the English teams are in a bit of a different situation than the Italian teams and the Spanish teams, the Spanish teams in particular. Uh, if you any of the sort of reaction and analysis of this is that the two clubs leading the charge here from a competition standpoint are Barcelona and Real Madrid because they dominate the Spanish league. They get into the Champions League pretty much every year. They go pretty deep into the Champions League pretty much every year. Barcelona is not quite as good as they were five years ago, but they're still a global power. Uh, Real Madrid is, uh, they've won the Champions League fairly yeah. recently. Um, and they spend a lot of money on players. Yes. I mean, for Real Madrid, the Champions League has been the the obsession it's there you know they they get to win the champions or they get to win the spanish league almost whenever they please they you know, they split mm -hmm. it with barcelona but the champions league that's where they really really care and in, uh, in italy a club like juventus uh, the biggest reason that they bought cristiano ronaldo a few years ago was they thought he might be the piece to put them over the top to win the, the champions league to be crowned as the best team in europe and it's the you know it's it's very uh, it's very important, and there is a lot of uh, there's. It, it's uh, financially important for these clubs to get in. Yeah. When when clubs it, like Arsenal and Manchester United miss the Champions League, they miss out on a lot of money, um, and they feel, and this is why it caused such a big reaction. The way that this was pitched is that they felt like being on these games, being on this global stage, is a birthright because they have mm -hmm. the branding of Arsenal and Manchester United. And that they 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 want to cash in. The owners here yep. wanted to cash in on the brands that they have built over the course of, if you go back to the start of the Premier League now, almost 30 years, and not have to deal with the actual, what we would probably call fair and sporting qualification process, where a team like Leicester gets into the Champions League because they win the Premier League. The way it normally works in the Premier League, there are, a couple of loopholes, but the top four teams in the standings every year get automatically qualify, and that's you know the way that the fans perceive it anyway is is fair. Certainly, much more fair than the six teams in England and the three other teams in in, in Spain and in Italy uh, announcing that they just get to put themselves in a European competition every year. Uh, probably sell the television rights to the highest bidder and see that become its own product, and that was. I think really what 
set people off. And uh, Gary Neville, who played for Manchester United for a long time, he's now a television commentator. He was very strong in his comments. And and Uh, very well spoken. Yes, yes. I mean, Gary Neville, uh, which is hilarious for me to say because I grew up hating Manchester United as an Arsenal fan. (laughs) And he is a particularly annoying player. He's a little right back. And I just was always like, this guy is so annoying. But he has turned into one of my favorite commentators because he's... He's very honest. Uh, his yeah, he call, he calls it like it is, and he was as critical of his own club, Manchester oh, yeah. United, big time, as he was of of any other club. And I, I think the bigger picture too was that not only did it significantly financially benefit the twelve clubs that were going to go and do this league, but the Champions League as a whole funds soccer across Europe. That's right. Um, yep. You know, the the big clubs obviously are the draw, but that that money that is brought into the Champions League through ticket revenue, through sponsorship, through television broadcasting, that gets filtered down through all the clubs in England, Germany, and that really is a lifeblood for the development of players, clubs, all of those things. So to have the 12 teams that are the biggest draw leave that system to go to us... Um, to set up a league effectively where they take all of the money yeah. and it's not shared throughout the, the the system. I was I was trying to think of the easiest equivalent. It would be like if the six best countries in soccer in the world decided they weren't going to play in the World Cup any longer. Right. They were going to yeah. start their own new like Super World Cup. And, you know, all of a sudden they instead of, you know, teams qualifying for the World Cup and and CONCACAF being able to fund Canadian soccer or soccer in Mexico or you know, Australian soccer around the world, all of a sudden, all the money's going to Italy, England, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and Germany. Yeah. So that was in, I think, in a bigger picture, one of the biggest things that... Yeah, that's you know, a good way to put it. Yeah, and it, and it create, created a huge, um, you know, uprising within, specifically in England. And, you know, I think the other element of this, which is interesting, and I'm curious because one of the owners is the owner of Arsenal, which is your club. Yeah. But three of the owners of the big three in England are American owners. They're not English. They're not European. And I'm talking about John Henry, who also owns the Red Sox. He owns Liverpool. Uh, Joel Glazer, who at one point, the Glazer family also owned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm not sure if they still do. I believe so. They own, yeah, they own Manchester United. And then Stan Kroenke, who owns the Avalanche, uh, believe the LA Rams yes technically yeah, and actually, he he owns the Rams and his son owns the abs and the nuggets because the right. NFL does not allow for uh ownership joint of multiple sports franchises within uh that country I guess because it hasn't stopped the Glazers obviously from being able to own and and same with Stan Kroenke right um so as an Arsenal fan, like, how do you feel about Stan Kroenke and sort of his involvement in this? And do you think we will see a change in ownership of any of those big English clubs as a result of this? It it wouldn't be surprising if at least one of them decided to move on because this was this was their play. This was always their play. The creation of a Super League, if you will, is, is not a new concept that's been talked about for, I mean, there are newspaper clippings of it being talked about for 40 years, but really, you know, in these terms with the global brands, it's been talked about for 15 years, pretty, pretty significantly. And this was back when this was pre Manchester City. 
being purchased uh, by royalty, <laughs> by UAE royalty, and, uh, yeah. and and turning the the world upside down, the soccer world upside down. This was back when it was the big four, so Chelsea, Liverpool. I mean, Chelsea also was you know a newcomer with Roman Abramovich's money. It's right, all money, the Russian and the, the Americans, uh, the Glazers in particular, uh, but Kroenke as well, and then more recently John Henry recognized the global opportunities, the brands that and, and the the passionate followings that these clubs have. Uh, it's very clear. It was clear uh, when I went to an Arsenal game at the Emirates a decade ago, almost actually to the day, 10 years ago. The, the feeling about Stan Kroenke then was negative, and that has only ballooned since then because the team has slid. The, the, the quality on the field is not what it used to be. There are a lot of different reasons for that, but it. it uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the Canucks momentarily, and that's you know, it, it goes up. These problems usually yeah. usually start at the top when the quality has fallen, and these fans they have expectations for what uh, what they're watching, and this is this will kind of be, I guess, my my final overall point on it, which ties both aspects: the competition aspect and then the the American influence aspect. Uh, even prior to these owners being involved in the Premier League, there has been a fascination with the Premier League with the NFL. They love the NFL. They think the NFL has a great business model. The NFL really does have a great business model. It's it's pretty much bulletproof. The difference, however, is that you could put pretty much anybody, with the exception of probably the quarterbacks, in Dallas Cowboys and Green Bay Packers uniforms, as long as they're pretty good at football. You could throw them out there and people would watch. If you put any Joe Schmo in a Real Madrid uniform and a Juventus uniform and you put them out there, people aren't going to be the, the way that the, the football fans, the soccer fans in Europe are attracted to the game. They're not going to fall for it, if you will. Like they care about where the players come from. They care deeply about how good the players are. The American football model, with the exception of the quarterback, there's a lot of no names. Sure, maybe a star running back, maybe a star receiver, maybe a star on the defense. But otherwise, of the 22 players that are on the field at a given time, how many, with the exception of you know ultra nerd fans, and I would count myself among that, so that's not a, that's not a pejorative, uh, know you know anything about a lot of the players that are on the field in soccer? They know everything about the players, and this is where they feel like they're being taken for fools. And especially when you look at a club like Arsenal, where their quality of play 15 years ago, they were in the discussion. They never won the Champions League. They lost in the final once. But you know, Invincible season 03-04, they were in the conversation in the early Arsene Wenger years as the best club in Europe. And they had the results to back it. They have not had that for over 10 years now. And the feeling is, oh, well, you're just cashing in on the name. And you're not actually putting this back into, to your point, Alex, about uh, the development of the sport beyond just these teams. That's a, that's a big part of it. And I uh, was talking to Sat Shah from Sportsnet 650 about this while the news was breaking. And he made the point that look at where all the players from these teams, the six teams in England in particular, are from. The vast majority of them are not developed by those clubs because they have They're to purchase. So they go and they buy players from... Uh, Let's just use Manchester United, for example. Their captain is Harry Maguire, who uh, he wasn't developed at Leicester, but they bought him from Leicester for 80 million pounds. 
where do they think they're going to find? And this is not me, you know, saying Harry Maguire is the greatest player in the world. But where they think that they're going to find these players now if they're not invested in the financial viability of some of these other clubs? I mean, you look at um, some of the other big teams in England and some of the biggest players in England that came from the West Ham Academy in the late 90s, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, Joe Cole, uh, I believe Michael Carrick as well. Like they, they all were coming from this, you know, these academies from teams that I mean, West Ham is a historic team in England. Uh, but they're not a team currently, you know, I think they were a historic team in the 60s, but they're not a team that's, that's yeah, pressing they, for they, the Champions League. But they still they, have the ability, or they had the ability to develop these really good players. And this system would be completely removing themselves from that. And I just don't think that they have put a lot of thought into, well, where are we going to get these players? Because I just, I, I honestly don't think they care. I think that they think that they can play the fans for fools. They can put pretty much you and me in Manchester United Arsenal jerseys, put us out there and think that fans across the world are going to be invested because they're more invested in the brand than they are in the sport and in the players. Yeah, and I think I think they're they're interested in the short term gain, the financial um, you know windfalls, and I don't think they have a, a sense of the bigger picture. And I think they like the results. I think they like winning Champions Leagues. I think they like winning Premiership titles but I don't think they have an appreciation for the entire process. And I think the other thing that was really key, and, and this is actually very curious, and I know we're going to shift on to the Canucks here. And I don't know if, you know, how many other people see the connection point, but it was also very clear that I think the specifically the American owners in England that we just touched on, I don't think they had an appreciation and a full understanding for the way the fans in Europe believe that those clubs are theirs. And that the owners are really just stewards of those clubs right. and not the sort of way that I think owners in North American sports feel almost godlike in their power. Mm -hmm. This is my team, my club. And the fans Jerry Jones. very <laughs> Yeah. And the fans very quickly, and it wasn't just the fans, it was the media, it was just in, in England, it got it went up to the government level. Yeah. Um I mean, Prince it did William not take released Boris Johnson statement. very long to speak out against it. No, I mean, that's an and, easy political win. But to your point, yeah, I mean, but like this would be like if, well, maybe some people in Canada would like this. But if the if the Canadian teams just decided like we're just going to play against each other, and I mean, there's differences there because then you lose the American market and the American sponsorships and stuff like that. But like in terms of the emotions behind it, where it's yeah. just like okay, like we're cutting this off, and we've I mean we've had that this year for unprecedented reasons, but we've had the Canadian teams just playing against each other. Um, and it's, it, it has, and felt. it's, it's diluted it. Yes. Like, it has felt like honest. the full competition has not been there. Yeah. And it's made a Toronto Vancouver game, not have the same sort of feel or significance that it has in a typical year. I, I think the biggest takeaway I have, and I, and I am curious to see if this shifts to North American sports at all is the power of the fan. And, you know, as we shift into the Canucks here, cause you know, they've returned from COVID they had, a, you know, a really interesting week. Um, <laughs> you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, bigger picture, and we've talked about this with the Canucks, you know, I'm not sure that the franchise has had a more promising future on the ice than what the team currently has. But I also, you know, to juxtaposition to that, I'm not sure that this team has been as shaky and as leaky off the ice as far as management and ownership and the decisions that they're making. And so I think that's the real crux of why the fan base is at, is at such odds right now. 
And when I look at, you know, what happened this week in European soccer, you realize that as a fan, you know, you individually may not have that much power, but collectively you do. And the only way these owners make money is if you are spending money on tickets, you know, beer, parking, um, you know, merchandise, that type of thing. And really, if you don't like what you're seeing, don't open your wallet. You know, that's that's how you speak to ownership. That's how, you know, you can fly banners over the city. You can do whatever you want. But in a lot of ways, that's it just sort of like scatters the attention. But really, the biggest impact you can have is keeping your wallet closed. Don't spend your money. You know, that's what speaks the loudest to owners. And that's where you can impact change as a fan. Um, let's get into the Canucks week. Um, you know, we sat here last week. Uh, we talked about the return to play, what the expectations were with this team. Um, it, I think it's fair to say universally, the expectations were not high after what the Canucks had gone through uh, physically, mentally, emotionally with COVID, but also the fact that they hadn't played in almost three and a half weeks. Um, they took both games off the Toronto Maple Leafs, which I, I don't think a lot of people saw. You could argue whether they deserved, I mean, especially the first game. I mean, they were outchanced. They were, you know, Braden Holpe, Held the minute, um, but w- but how do you feel a week later with what you saw from this team? Do you have some sense of hope for the playoffs? Are you feeling like the Canucks are now kind of caught in that that chunky middle where they're going to make a run for the playoffs? They'll probably come up short, but they're also going to lose. You know, having a great you know the odds at a higher draft pick, or do you think that we're going to see the Canucks come back down to back down to earth here and and probably you know the fatigue catch up to them a little bit. Yeah, this has been a just a strange season overall, so it's hard to dismiss it completely out of hand, but I, I still don't have the sense that they're going to go on a on an unbelievable run here. Um, as you said, that first game, it was Holpe keeping them in it. Uh, look, Bo Horvats looked good, and clearly, you know, this has been an up-and-down season for him, and it seems like uh, that... You know, COVID pause, if you will, the outbreak uh, had a pretty significant impact on him uh, from a mental standpoint. Uh, you know, the comments that he made that we discussed were were taken very strong. I mean, he, he, you've covered him a little bit and know that uh, he's a pretty straightforward guy. Uh, he's, you know, he he and he he's gonna he's gonna say what's on his mind, um, and that's not to say you know he's not. Uh, He's not going to be like Gary Neville is on Sky Sports right now, but he is still like he's he's not a BSer. He's going to be really straightforward with people, and that's been pretty clear uh, in his play and in what he's had to say. And so I think that it's pretty important for him to you know close out this season on a strong note. But I mean, you just look at the you look at the lineup right now. Um, there's a lot of young guys now. I mean, there's been a lot of turnover. There's a lot of flyers being taken on some players here that are going to get a chance to show that they have some some spunk and some energy to make an impact on this team. I just, yeah, I mean, it's going to be such a grind, uh, especially yeah. once we get through this weekend. They start having those as back-to-backs, far, and I, I, as, I can, it's going to be tough. Yeah, as, as we sit here, the Canucks are 10 points behind fourth-place Montreal for the final playoff spot in the North Division. But they also do have five games in hand. So in theory, if you know if if Vancouver is able to win those five games, that'll that would make up ten points. Uh, both teams play tonight. Montreal, uh, after losing last night to Calgary, um, they play again tonight. So Vancouver conceivably could cut that lead down to eight points and still have five games in hand if Vancouver wins tonight against Ottawa. 
and Montreal loses again against Calgary. Um, but there's still a long way to go. I, th- I think your point on Bo Horvat's a good one because Bo Horvat is what I think we as sort of older Canadian hockey culture really liked. You know, wasn't going to ruffle a lot of feathers, was, you know, d- didn't sort of speak outside the team. You know, he was so- sort of a good Canadian boy. And I think that's what made his comments when he met with the media so telling when he was asked about the support from ownership and management and in a very clear but indirect way acknowledged, didn't acknowledge ownership, did not acknowledge management. And, you know, like a lot of you, there's a lot of sort of sense right now, um, a lot of reporters doing some digging on what that dynamic is because it's clear the players aren't, aren't happy. And I think in particular, Bo Horvat as the captain was put in a really tough spot because I think Bo, as the leader of the players, was supposed to sort of be able to take whatever message and communicate with management, with ownership. And I think he felt let down and therefore he let his teammates down because he wasn't, he didn't have any of the information that he apparently needed. And I think he was really disappointed in how the Canucks dealt with that. Will this sort of dissipate as things go on? That's, I think, the big question. And I think that's what a lot of people are waiting to see. But I think it's, you know, it's been such a weird year where, you know, Jim Benning was on the hot seat earlier this year. Is he going to come back? You know, Elliot Friedman saying, I'm pretty sure he's coming back. Or, I, you know, I seem to believe at this point. And now, you know, everything that's happened with the players, I think, you know, it's raised that question again. Will Jim be back? Will ownership need to, you know, sacrifice someone to sort of, you know, appease the player's discontent. And when you think about it, if if Jim's sort of up for debate, you know, the entire coaching staff's up for debate, you know, I'm not sure how this fan base feels about ownership. It's a really, for for this stage of a, of a team, especially with the team that they've built on the ice, where they should be starting to get into that window of going for a cup to see how much acrimony is going on with this franchise off the ice. It's going to be a fascinating offseason to see what ownership does. And it's, we should say, the backdrop to all of this is I think in a normal year, Jim Benning's gone. Sure. But I think that the, the backdrop to all of this is that ownership does not want to spend any money. Mm-hmm. And because of the way ownership has acted, you know, and I've said this before, I don't think there's a long lineup of really good qualified candidates who want to come and work here. So ownerships kind of back themselves into a corner and it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of where they go with that. The Super League stuff has really helped it, helped frame some of it, not the whole situation, but the sense that, you know, 10 years ago, this was a model organization, certainly on the ice. They were getting results, back-to-back President's Trophy, 2011, incredible run. There was the sense that they were building something there. And that is what, sports fans want. So when like that was the big thing. So Arsenal fans were almost embarrassed to have been put into the Super League because the results on the field have not dictated that they deserve to be there. And I think that what you see with the reaction within the Canucks fan base is that there's elements of that. There's elements that that whether, you know, the franchise or ownership are still trying to cash checks from 2011. And Ultimately, what a a fan of pro sports wants is their team to win and to maintain, you know, a high quality of play. And so for these teams, and we we saw it all across England with all of the the blowback, they don't want 
you know, these pity invites because their brand is strong. They want to prove it on the field. So fans of Liverpool were incredibly proud last year when Liverpool had an incredible season in the Premier League and the year before that won the Champions League. Yeah. So that for them, that is that is sports. That is we did it on the field within sure it's still a construct. There's still the parameters of the Premier League and the business there and the Champions League and the business there. But this was, you know, an extra step that people could not compute. And with the Canucks, it's like, okay, we're having all these discussions about some maybe strife between the players and management or at least miscommunication, you know, at the, at the least of it. Um, and what the fan, like the fans just want this team to figure it out. And with all of this stuff going on, at least to me, it seems like why should anybody have faith that it's going to change? Like, why should they have faith that it's going to go in a positive direction? We, yeah, you know, it, we, we saw it happen. We saw it with a lot of the people involved here, um, at least at the top, certainly the ownership involved, where this was a team that had uh, as good as it got. They didn't win the Stanley Cup. I know that's very disappointing. They had built a structure, and but then it it you know it it blew up. They have not been able to rebuild that. No. And as much as you said, you know, like they have the pieces on the ice. This is not quite like uh, the late '90s where Marcus Naslin was here, but Marcus Naslin, who was you know a, a well-regarded junior player, a first-round pick, at that point was people were sort of writing him off already. He was not what Elias Pettersson has proven to be over three years. They didn't have anyone like Quinn Hughes. Uh, they didn't have anyone like Thatcher Demko, who's now been committed to with a long-term contract. The building blocks are there. They're obvious. And then we can go down. You know, Brock Besser, positive story. Niels Hoaglander, positive story this well, year. As I said, I don't think the Canucks franchise has ever had a young team with this much potential. I'm, I'm not sure they've ever had that. And But for as much talent as they have on the ice, if the organization is not set up above them, and there's not alignment from you know top to bottom, they're going to waste this talented group completely. And that's going to hurt even more than anything. Maybe uh, yeah, not well, the and cup, I think, but it's going to hurt a lot. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, I think that's where the anger is coming from, is that I think the fan base is starting to see that and starting to see that that might be happening or that it could be unfolding in front of their very eyes. And before you know it, we're going to wake up in two or three years and be like, what just happened? You know, the fact that Travis Green doesn't have a contract is solely a financial decision from ownership. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was reported this week that they're trying to go cheaper. You know what? It's not like Travis hasn't done a good job. Travis has earned another contract. You know, if you wanted to debate money a little bit, sure, you can do that. But Who's the replacement for Travis Green? He's not going to come in cheaper unless they go with a totally unproven, really cheap, inexperienced coach. And that very well could happen. You know, um, Seattle doesn't have a coach. Rick Tockett is, you know, it looks like he's going to be moving on from Arizona. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's been highly regarded. Rod Brindamore is still sort of in the last year of his deal in Carolina. And by all accounts, I think it's safe to say he's one of the really bright up and coming young coaches. I'd, I'd probably even slot him in a little higher than Travis because I think he's, he's had maybe a little more success in Carolina mm -hmm. over, a, over a, a little bit more consistently, but I also I'm sure think Travis would, would say that if he had Carolina's yes. blue line, that he would feel better <laughs> than that. Maybe his results would be there, but I mean, not to take anyway, anything away from the job that Rob Brindamore has done 
and the respect that he's garnered pretty quickly around the league. Um, yeah. But Travis, he's right there. Uh, I know that there's some dissenters in the fan base that don't get it, and they, they look at the results, and they like to pin that on the head coach. Uh, I would say that you know the cracks were pretty obvious, and that most of the time he's been able to paper over quite a few of them. Not all of them, because I think there were probably too many to do. But like, if if you're just gonna analyze the job that he has done with the cards that he was dealt, it's you know it's a B plus at worst, and you yeah, you, I would you could be arguing you know a an A an A minus depending on on how you feel about stuff, depending on how you want to. I mean, there's you know the stuff that we don't know. Some of the players that maybe he would want to move off of that he wasn't uh, able to do so, whether it was financial or whether it was a management decision. Um, I always go back to his willingness to play Elias Pettersson at center immediately. When going into the season, that was not something that was talked about. It was pretty much, this guy's going to be a winger. Let's see how that goes. And even though he had been so good the year before. And uh, he did that. And it was, you know, he was justified right away in doing so. And uh, the young players, their evolution. Uh, I mean, I think even Bo Horvat. I think he's taken some strides. I, I know when you look at some of the numbers, uh, it's it's uh, and not his numbers in particular, but like the 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 matchup numbers, the goals for, the goals against numbers. I mean, like last year was a bit of a down year, but I feel like take him out of the Canucks situation and put him in a in a better situation, and that the that the numbers would follow. Uh, he he's mm-hmm. very similar to Brock Besser. Would would still be a guy that I would bet on that I would want to have on my team, that I want to have in my organization. And I'm a stats guy, but I feel like sometimes we get a little bit lost in the numbers uh, when it comes to that kind of stuff. No, like, you know, through through seven years of really poor teams, the Canucks have, have gotten a lot of high draft picks. And they've hit on some of those. Uh, some of those have fallen in their lap. You know, I know... I know Jim Benning gets a lot of credit for Quinn Hughes. Uh, that's a pick that I feel like anyone would have made. Quinn Hughes fell to the Canucks at seven. Um, Elias Pettersson, Elias Pettersson. uh, That's a pick that I think Jim deserves a lot of credit. The franchise deserves a lot of credit because I know talking to different teams around the league, there were some teams that had Pettersson, you know, below 10th on their draft boards. And there were also some teams that had him as high as, like, I think the Canucks had him in the top three. But to sort of, you know, that one wasn't as much of a slam dunk. The Canucks could have gone in a number of directions. And it's safe to say that, you know, Pedersen was was a steal at five in that draft. And, you know, that, that one I think Jim deserves a lot of credit for. But at some point, you know, this team has to start, you know, they can't just keep drafting high. They have to start, you know, utilizing asset development and managing assets better. And that's something that this franchise has consistently struggled on under this management group. Um, quickly, before we kind of move on, um, Leafs, goaltending. I know this was something we talked about. They, It's been their sort of Achilles heel all season. Uh, there were a lot of questions going into the trade deadline, what they would do. Um, it's, you know, Freddie Anderson has now not played in almost, I think, six or seven weeks. Um, you know, Jack Campbell came in, had a nice run, but they didn't have a clear number one. Were they going to shore that up? They ended up getting David Riddich from Calgary, and so they've kind of got a, a three-headed monster, but none of them are sort of a, a runaway top 10 goalie in the league. And safe to say that, you know, Holtby outplayed uh, Jack Campbell on uh, on Monday or Sunday. Yeah. 
And then Riddich, I mean, that was one of the worst goaltending performances <laughs> probably this season. And I think it raises a lot of questions. I mean, the Leafs, their management group has built a really good team on the ice. Um, forwards, defense, they got a lot of balance. They got a lot of depth. And But goaltending, I mean, you could see it specifically the, the Riddich game where like it was deflating for the Leafs. You know, like when that last, that, that goal went in off the wing, the Tanner Pearson one, like Matthews just, you could almost just see the deflation in his shoulders and his, his expression. Um, raises a lot of questions in Toronto as they head for what they're hoping to be, you know, a fairly long playoff run here. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the fan base there is just terrified of a potential goalie meltdown, whichever one it is. I mean, at this point, I, I assume that Campbell did enough in that run to at least be kind of the number one guy, unless Riddish came in immediately and was was great, and that has not been the case. Certainly not against the Canucks. So that is that's that's a scary part of this. Uh, and the thing is, prior to I guess the end of last season and this season, Freddie Anderson was a very consistent goalie. They knew what they were going to get, uh, at least in the regular season. I know there were some questions about his playoff performance, but he hasn't been that guy in over a year now. Mm-hmm. And the other two, uh, Riddich has had some runs. Campbell's had this run. Um, but it is uh, it is not a good feeling. Uh, it, I, to be honest, like I, I could see them having a case where they're like moving goalies around, like not having a consistent netminder as they try yeah, to I mean, their way through the Yeah, I mean, it's not unprecedented. I guess we saw it with the Flyers. We've seen it with the Flyers. Uh, historically, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, well, the Penguins had one where I think they started Murray, they started Flurry, and then they went to Murray after the second round. Right. But I, but I don't know if I can think of a team that sort of rotated three goaltenders. I'm going to look up the Flyers team that made the Cup final against Chicago because that, that year Michael they had Layton. a bunch of goalies. Yeah, Michael Layton was the guy that sort of secured. So that year in the regular season, they had. Three, they, they had five goalies total, but three goalies that played over that had over 25 starts Michael Layton, Ray Emery, and Brian Boucher. Right. And then in the playoffs, uh, it was two guys. It was Layton had 13 starts, and Brian Boucher made 10 starts. Right. So it's, you know, it's not unprecedented. Uh, and Layton ended up being the guy at a 916 safe percentage. Boucher was 909, which is. You know, at that time, not horrible. Uh, and Leighton was the better player during the regular season as well, 918. Um, so again, yeah, like not unprecedented, but not not ideal. Uh, you no. need you need a goalie to like. I still feel like they should have enough to get through the Canadian division. But I, if I was a Leafs fan, I still wouldn't feel very good about it. Oh, like if they go up against, the, to be honest, the teams that would worry me if I'm Toronto. The Jets and Edmonton. I could see, you know, I could see Leafs winning both those series, but I could also see the Jets or the Oilers getting on a quick roll and knocking them out quickly. And I think all the pressure is going to be on Toronto. It's going to be, it'll be fascinating to see, you know, where Freddie Anderson is because we haven't seen him. There's, you know, there's no sort of concrete when he's going to return to the lineup. And now with their their salary cap situation, there's a big debate whether they can even get him back into the lineup before the playoffs because they just don't have the salary cap space to bring them off LTIR. Um, really quickly, um, Oilers continue to roll here. Um, and I saw this stat this week. I thought it was really telling because I think it's 
barring some unforeseen circumstance, I think Connor McDavid has all but locked up the Hart Trophy this year. He's been unbelievable. So Connor McDavid's running away with the points race. But if you look at just his primary points, so goals and first primary assists, he still is ahead of every other player in the NHL point-wise, except for his teammate Leon Dreisaitl, who has one more point. Right. And that's including all of Dreisaitl's second assists. And that's taking away all of McDavid's second assists. Like, he has just had an unbelievable year. Had another highlight real goal this week. Yeah, it's like, it feels like he has one a week. Yeah. Do we underappreciate him? Like, I, I... I know we talked about this, I don't know, a couple months ago, but like, I know he's skilled. I just, I don't know why, I just don't get the sense that he's in that, we don't look at him in the same reverence that we looked at like a Sidney Crosby or even like a Jonathan Taste. I think it's probably because he just makes it look so easy. It's, I feel like it's Mike Trout. It's just like, you've just come to expect it. And yeah. and the personality doesn't help, yeah, right? Same, same with Mike Trout. Yeah. Um, no, that's why it's a good comparable, I think. With they're him. just, it's just he's i mean I, I saw him i had really good seats for a game uh i guess late 2019 so just pro, just before christmas canucks oilers in vancouver uh in i got lucky had lower bowl seats and he was he's just he's unbelievable to watch right just the acceleration uh the puck control uh the ability to attack right i mean it's interesting i'm not the biggest draft prospect guy and you know prospect analysis guy but in my day job at the athletic i do a fair bit of editing those stories and reading draft coverage and the thing that comes across a lot is uh and what is super important and this is obvious if you're a hockey fan but it's the ability to take the puck to the net and Connor mcdavid has that ability and he does it he has it because his speed is incredible but he still is able to maintain possession of the puck and that doesn't mean that every time he drives to the net he's going to score a goal but it's just constantly you know if you were a goalie if you're a defenseman you're constantly on edge that this guy is going to ram it down your throat uh so it's not just purely like oh he's you know he's a he's a circus player he can he can do tricks on the ice it's like no this guy's super effective he can shoot he can pass um I think what people are waiting for is that playoff success, which is why, again, the Mike Trout comparison uh, stands. Mike Trout's made the playoffs once in his career. Uh, his numbers are Mickey Mantle equivalent, uh, but he mm-hmm. he doesn't get the shine necessarily. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it's tough. Sort of. Yeah, it's not the numbers. It's more sort of the recognition, I think. Um, to your point, it, in some ways, I think it's a better way to see McDavid's greatness by looking at the players trying to defend him. I mean, these are world-class players and to see how panicked and how, you know, easily they are walked around. I mean, he makes it look effortless. And so in some ways he almost makes it look easy, but it's almost when you look at the opposition that he's going around is, is how you can tell how good he is. Um, The other player I wanted to bring up uh, and we've touched on a little bit is Kirill Kaprizov, who's having an absolutely stunning quote-unquote rookie year in Minnesota, had another highlight reel goal last night against uh, the Los Angeles Kings. And he looks to be the runaway winner of the Calder Trophy. But it brought up sort of the debate this week, and I'm kind of curious to know where you stand on this. Um, Kaprizov was a fifth-round pick, 135th overall in 2015. So that's the McDavid draft. Right. But, But then played five full seasons in the KHL after his draft year. So played professionally in Russia for five years, finally comes over to Minnesota and has a great year. So he's 
technically a rookie. But there were some questions raised this week whether somebody who's played five full professional seasons somewhere else should be eligible for the Calder Trophy. So um, the rule, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, was it Danny Markov won the Calder Trophy as a 31-year-old, I think. And they changed the rule that you have to be under 25. Right. That's, and Kaprizov's... He's 23. 20, right. So... Do you have are you do you feel strongly about it that he shouldn't be eligible? As long as he's under 25, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I that's thought where it I raised stand. the Yeah, because I mean Vasily he's coming over. He's still young and he just got drafted, but he's played professional seasons. Yeah. And then you start getting into the semantics of like, what about a player that's in the AHL? And we're just used to I the reason that this comes up is because uh, and this came up in baseball a lot too. Like Ichiro won the Rookie of the Year after playing, uh, you know, many seasons professionally in Japan. He won the MVP and the Rookie of the Year in the same year. His first year with the Mariners, two thousand one. The reason that this stuff usually comes up is because there is a young phenom, or at least a young player that is succeeding at the highest level, that loses the chance of winning this trophy, the trophy that you only get the chance to win once um, because there is some outstanding circumstance where a player happens to be playing in Russia, which is the second best league, uh, the second best professional hockey league, was not seen as a player like Evgeny Malkin or Alex Ovechkin brought it over almost immediately. So there is that window and then there's, you know, you start to argue, okay, well, what are the parameters in this? The way I see the parameters, that's unless you, I mean, I I just don't see how how much younger you could go. Um, And then all of a sudden, like, let's say like, what if it's just because we don't see it very often. Like we don't see a five-year AHL player come to the NHL and, and have a rookie of the year type season, especially the way that the league is trending now with younger players making an impact immediately and so to me it's it's a bit of an outlier he's had a great year he's made the wild semi-interesting which in itself is probably deserving of some sort of accolade oh well i was saying the other day he's probably if you think about minnesota and you think about how passionate they are about hockey in some ways you go back to i think they were a 2000 expansion so for 21 years here they have had really boring teams really boring players um and i was thinking I think he's got to be the most exciting player in franchise history. The only other one I could think of was was Marion yeah, Dabrick. That's the only sort one. of those those early sort of Minnesota teams that had a bit of success in sort of the early 2000s. But it's great to see because for whatever reason, Minnesota has sort of adopted that identity of sort of a trapping, structured, not very exciting hockey. Um, you know, I mean, who looks forward to seeing the Minnesota Wild when they come to town? Like they just have never been that franchise. Yes, they're the classic... And, you know, worst, worst ticket on the schedule. And that's, that's yeah. not, they, they've had successful teams. They've had playoff runs. They've played team games, but it's not, I think around the league it's because even like, think about we, Columbus blue jackets. They at least had Rick Nash yeah. where it was like, okay, like if you're in Vancouver yeah. and it was a Wednesday night game and your friend had tickets and they said, Hey, do you want to go watch? Columbus, you go, oh, I can see Rick Nash. He's a you know big part of Team Canada, high draft pick and stuff. 
Minnesota, I mean, Marion Gabrick was injured all the time either, too. So yeah. he was Wes like, Walls and Manny Fernandez, <laughs> you know, like it was, yeah, it was horrible. Philippe Kuba, man, that's some, some yeah. great names. I mean, obviously the Canucks had some sordid history with the Wild as well. Maybe that, yeah. that plays into it, but they are, I think, just kind of around the league, a team that people are just like, man. Well, and, and the Northwest Division, I mean, Minnesota was in there for so long. Mm-hmm. So we saw Minnesota a lot and, you know, they were, they would put you to sleep. Um, I mean, the other thing with Kaprizov is just, I mean, he's another name to add to that 2015 draft, which, you know, his is quickly sort of, I think it's supplanted the 03 draft is now probably the best draft. I mean, just looking at the first round here, but Connor McDavid, it's Jack loaded. Eichel, Mitch Marner, Noah Hannafin, Ivan Provorov, Zach Wierenski, Timo Meyer, Mikko Rantanen at 10, uh, Jake DeBrusque, who I know is having a little bit of trouble. That was the year, too, that Boston had those three picks. Three in a row. 13, yeah. 14, 13, 14, and 15, and they kind of missed. Barzell at 16. Well, that's, that's the miss. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, Kyle, Kyle Connor 17. Thomas Shabbat, 18. Yeah. You know? And then Besser, 23. Travis Konechny at 24. I mean, this kid, Kaprizov, was taken in the fifth round. Yeah. 135th overall. I mean, that's like Pavel Bure. You know? Like, how you find a player of that much talent that late in the draft is just... I mean, credit to Minnesota. Um, I mean, not that they need any draft help with Judd Brackett there, but um, yeah, just you know, a phenomenal situation. So um, anyway, just wanted to touch on that as it stands right now. I mean, because I know we've been watching that division a little bit. Um, Minnesota would get Colorado in the first round of the playoffs, and right now it would be Vegas, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so it sets us up for that matchup that I think everyone or a lot of hockey fans have been looking forward to in the second round, a potential Colorado-Vegas, which in some ways is almost like that could be the Stanley Cup. I mean, it almost harkens back to the mid-90s when it was Colorado-Detroit. They'd meet in that Western Conference final, but you kind of knew whoever won that was going to be the team. Um, I think there's a little more depth kind of quote-unquote out east this year with with Tampa and Washington, you know, maybe Toronto's in that mix to a degree. New York Islanders flying under the radar, but um, yeah, a lot going on. Um, quickly, we touched on it. I just want to kind of go over possible changes this year, you know, and we touched on Rod Brindamore. We touched on Rick Tockett. Uh, Travis Green obviously doesn't have a deal. Um, Seattle's coming in. They need to hire a coach. And then I'm also thinking about general managers. I wonder about Bob Murray in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Um Brad Trilliving, I I do really wonder about him in Calgary with kind of everything that's going on. How much change do you think we could see? Um, where do you see potentially people moving? Um, who do you think's on a hot seat here or in danger of of maybe losing their job? Probably less uh, movement than we expected for the same reason that we covered with the Canucks. There are financial. still the financial question marks. I mean, Calgary stands out for sure. Uh, when you look at Anaheim, the results dictate that. But by all accounts, it's still it's still Bob Murray's team to run. And that's that's Anaheim's fascinating because they've got a decent prospect hall, but nothing like what the Kings have, right? The Kings yeah. the Kings have this mother load of prospects. They are far and away at this point, the top team with uh, a bunch of, you know, really solid players and they obviously had Quentin Byfield in the draft. Um, they, com- they committed to a rebuild. Yes. And yeah, they went both feet in. So Anaheim is in this mushy middle, but not showing any reason why they should 
you know, they're probably, it feels like they've got another place, to, they've got another, uh, another step to drop. And that probably won't be pretty, but it doesn't seem like it's a priority there to, to make a change. Um, the one to, to me that's maybe getting ahead, a bit ahead of myself, but Ottawa, I don't think they make a change this year, but you know, they've, they've been able to play some better hockey in the second half of this season. They've still got yeah. some more young players coming. If they're not significantly better next year, that's something to watch, though. Again, the financial component, Ottawa is always that's that's going to be the first question. Uh, and it, just looking in Canada, what much what happens in Montreal? Fascinating, yeah. no, right? That's a good. Yeah, I hadn't thought of them. I mean, so I, I looked at it this coach way, and, GM, and that's you know the interim yes. coach right now, Dominic Ducharme. Bergevin's yeah. been there for a long time. They have a lot of good players under contract, and this is that's not even talking the price and Weber contracts. You know, we're talking about. To Foley's contract, uh, Brendan Gallagher just signed an extension. Jeff Terry Petrie. Um, there are a lot of you know guys that are in their prime or maybe sliding out of their prime on deals, and they've got the young players in Kokaniemi and Suzuki that have people excited, but uh, are, are they're not powerhouses yet? And that the question there, like they went all in this year, yeah, and they're, they, they're they've been they've they the flames have been the. Yeah, both Montreal and the Flames have been the biggest disappointments for me in the in the Canadian division. I I look at it this way, especially when you're you're factoring in the Travis Green situation, whether he wants to go somewhere else, whether the Canucks go cheaper and and he has to find another job. I think there's well, there's obviously an opening in Seattle. I think John Tortorella is it's very clear he's in the last year of his deal. I don't think he's coming back in Columbus. Yeah, it'd be so Columbus stunning if he's back at this point. Yeah. And it's it seems fairly clear that Rick Tockett is going to be moving on from Arizona. So there's at least three openings that I can see that, you know, and I don't know if if Travis could be a fit for any of them. I, I think there's, you know, to me, Seattle makes sense. Um, but that's sort of the scenario. I still have faith that Rod Brindabor can get re-upped in Carolina. And, you know, I'm not prepared to say that I'm completely done on Travis in Vancouver because, you know, with his BC ties and I think with where the team is at, there's enough there that he'd like to stay. I just think that the organization above Travis is proving to be a really big headache. And I just wonder if that proves to be too big a headache and Travis just decides, you know what, I'll have more success or I'll be put in a better position somewhere else than I will be here. Um... Wanted to ask you about this because I didn't really know what to make of it. It's it's a heavier topic, um, but I was, you know, I think like a lot of people, I watched with interest um, for the verdict in the George Floyd um, murder trial that um, sort of came to conclusion this week in Minneapolis. I will say I was caught off guard and I was kind of surprised at the just outpouring of statements from professional hockey teams about the verdict itself. And I know the the sort of the the killing of George Floyd sort of created um, a large sort of um, social movement, yep. and those during that that seemed to make sense to me. But I thought it was I don't know what your take on sort of all these statements was. It felt a little felt a little awkward to me. Um, them all sort of congratulating a correct verdict in a in a case that was taking place in a, in a city, in a state that didn't impact necessarily their team. Right. Um, I don't know. Did that stand out to you at all? I just, it felt a little, 
felt odd to me. Uh, I guess I'm just so numb to the social media stuff, and I, I don't I don't put a ton of stock into it. Though uh, the Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, had a tweet that drew immediate criticism. Yeah, with uh, just the messaging, I can breathe coming from uh, as reported by the Athletic. Uh, that was a directive, uh, direct uh, demand from owner Mark Davis, who is about as white as you can get. <laughs> he uh, and he he talked about it. He didn't back back down from it. Uh, one of the reporters who covers the Raiders for the Athletic is black, so they had a conversation about it, and he was pretty earnest mark davis was pretty earnest about his uh his feelings behind putting the tweet out there and took the feedback but didn't change his position it's uh i don't know it's it's complicated i'm not someone i i think that sports and politics are linked uh there's a long history of that um even prior to muhammad ali but that's that's one that gets brought up a lot. Uh, the the Olympics has been a sports and politics thing on both sides. Uh, I mean, you could just if you're interested in that, just look up the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Uh, and there, there's a lot there on the uh, the the regressive side of Mex- it, right? Mexico City. Yeah, there's a lot that you know. The, the Olympics is there, and then uh, what I think what I think is happening there is uh, I'll say. A number of NBA players were involved in the activism after the George Floyd stuff this summer, right? Uh, and that's not to say that NHL players weren't. But, and I mean, look, the NHL itself put out a statement that was also immediately uh, ripped because it was about as as milk toast as hey, you could get. Yeah, it was vague and... Yeah, it just seemed like nobody wanted to not release be the one organization right. that well that's the point where we're at because people yeah. people are um people are taking uh taking attendance on this yeah. and we're you know you see varying versions of what comes out and this goes back to last summer as you said it last summer that you know there was a lot of talk and statements made and organizations were asked to step up to me the statements don't do much I, I've never uh, I you know put actions and and money behind it as cynical as that sounds. The statements it's it's free throws and some teams even screw those up as we saw. Um, and people people are going to react negatively to it. It's a highly emotional thing. Uh, it's uh, this is this is professional sports in 2021. Uh, there is there has to be a social uh, at least awareness. And it, you're right, a lot of it doesn't come off. Super felt like white super gray. Yeah, I, I I understood the at the time of the killing because there was debate to be made whether they were going to charge the police officers involved, and you know I think at that point it made sense for people to um, speak up, uh, voice their opinions on the matter because that could have some sort of um, impact on the direction of justice and or lack thereof. Um, but when I saw the statements the other day you know, about the verdict. And it just sort of, I, I was sort of like, do I really need to hear, you know, the Columbus Blue Jackets sort of statement on this? Then the, you know, the league, the the NHL, um, you know, like that's, that was a legal matter. They, they found it. It's not to say that, I don't know. And, and these corporations, they're, they're faceless. It's not an individual. It's, you know, it's a, it's a corporate brand. I just sort of thought it set off a domino effect where nobody 
wanted to be the team that didn't release a statement. And I just, I just felt like my Twitter feed was just completely every team releasing a statement. I just, to be honest, that, that sort of stood out to me. Um, shifting gears, something else that wasn't amazing this week was the, um, the Women's World Hockey Championships getting kind of canceled mm-hmm. or I guess we're saying postponed yeah. at the very last minute. A um, little bit of finger pointing. Uh, sounds like the province of Nova Scotia didn't feel great given sort of the uptick with COVID cases across the country and some of the new variants. Um, what did you, I mean, a feel for these women, yep. you know, they've, they've now lost two, I mean, I think it's, I think Natalie Spooner wrote this week that their last international best on best tournament was over 700 days ago. Wow. And, you know, they're, they're supposed to have the Olympics coming up in February. Um, I believe the plan is they're hoping to maybe do the t- this tournament late August, uh, September. Obviously, the Olympics are going to cast a really big shadow in the middle of the summer, sort of late late July into August. Um, and just your thoughts on sort of felt a little preventable, you know, like Nova Scotia that's and the, the East Coast. That's is, why it, it stings because yeah. they have been proactive in moving other tournaments, you know, the U18s and... Uh, the thought was like, like, we'll go to places that'll have us. And with the right. women's tournament, they decided to stay committed to Nova Scotia after having it postponed once already. And it's it's debilitating for the development and the training and just the platform for for these players. Uh, they you only get so many so many kicks at the can, so many chances at a high level to to play to play in these competitions. So for for those athletes that's 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 tough because it yeah it just felt like i mean i think the the comment that's been coming from a number of the players is that they feel like they're on the back burner and that they they were their tournament was kept in nova scotia because they were gonna play the odds that it was gonna work out and it didn't work out and then here they are once again facing uh another few months before they have to ramp up for possibly this competition i think across the country we're hopeful that with vaccinations taking up that uh, we'll be in a better place at that time but it doesn't make it any easier for for a high level well, athlete to process and to 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 you know redouble their training and uh to put themselves in a place to 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 compete at that high level so i i definitely well, uh, i empathize i sympathize it's uh it, it's it's not easy uh, especially when a number of the other tournaments are seemingly a priority I mean, most most of us aren't high level athletes like these women, but I think we can relate to this in the sense that just having a glimmer of hope or something to work towards during this pandemic and to sort of have that removed in the in the fashion that it did. You you touched on the men's under eighteen world uh, world championships; those were supposed to be held in Michigan, uh, but USA Hockey, in a sort of a preventative measure, moved them to Texas because they they were worried about state impact and COVID in Michigan. So that was something that they had moved preemptively and um, they're going ahead with that tournament this month. Um, Finally, I'll wrap it up. You're a baseball guy, Jacob deGrom, um, having himself a bit of a week, sort of reaching those levels that, you know, I think most baseball fans sort of expect. We always get tantalized by these pitching prospects. And sometimes they, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, but Jacob deGrom is um, is sort of reaching those levels again. Yeah, I'll just read off some stats that uh, these are from a combination of Sportsnet stats and ESPN stats and info. So this is just from Sportsnet stats. Uh, he's made four starts this year. He's pitched 29 innings. His ERA is 0.31. His whip is 0.55. That's walks 
plus hits by innings pitched, which means that uh, half a batter is reaching base in an inning. So that means, you know, nine inning games, five people are, are reaching base. Uh, opponents are hitting 134 against them. He's got 50 strikeouts and he has three walks. And to put that into further context from ESPN Stats and Info, the 50 strikeouts are the most by a player through their first four starts in the modern era. That goes all the way back to uh, 1900. Uh, that's three straight games with 14 plus strikeouts. Uh, so three of the four. Uh, that's tied for the longest streak in the modern era. Again, 1900. And then the cherry on top after his performance uh, last night uh, on Friday night, uh, he has more runs batted in two than he has earned runs allowed this season one. <laughs> so <laughs> he's been he's been incredible. And you get those you get those runs with a pitcher every so often. Uh, actually was watching the Dodgers game last night with Clayton Kershaw. He's not that kind of pitcher anymore, but he had multiple runs like that where, you know, over the, a couple of months, he was pretty much unbeatable. If you follow the Seattle Mariners, you know, Felix Hernandez in 2014 had a run like that where I believe he had 14 straight starts of seven plus innings and two two runs or fewer. And so that's, you know, it's very rare. Uh, you go down the list, you probably look at a decade and you can pick maybe five or six guys that have put together runs like DeGrom is right now. And he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's got the Cy Young. Uh, he's been great. The Mets uh, started off hot, have, slow, have, have cooled down. They've also had a number of uh, postponements and cancellations through the seasons. They haven't been able to, to play a bunch of games. But, uh, I mean, he's, he's must-watch if you're a baseball fan and you have the package, as I do. He's, he's, he's just locked in. It's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, the Mets uh, sitting first in the NL East. Not that they're running away with it. Their uh, record of eight and seven. They're just ahead of Atlanta and Philly. Um, and the Jays have actually dropped back a little bit last week. They were second in the AL East. They've dropped. Uh, Tampa's overtaken them. Tampa's just ten and ten. The Jays still just one game under five hundred uh, at nine and ten. Um, all right, let's shift to sort of our weekly spotlights here. Uh, what we're looking forward to. Uh, last week we got into the Godfather. And your shock and disappointment <laughs> that I, I had not watched the movie one or two or, or three. Um, well, I haven't seen three either, so okay, it's okay. It's not considered so part I, of the canon. So I have I have to report back that I attempted. I can't remember if it was after the show on Saturday or if it was on Sunday, but last week, and I'm like, all right, I I turned to Kristen, I'm like, hey, do you want to let's try this Godfather thing. So we sat down, and I'll be honest, for 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, I just wasn't in the headspace for it. It's kind of the afternoon. I just, I think I know that it's a three-hour commitment, and I just... The ADD generation is just out of control here. Well, I, yeah. Anyway, I just, I couldn't go through it. I'm like, today's not the day to, to do this. So, um, unfortunately, I, I have to report back. I, I cannot give you a review. It's okay. That's fine. You, know, you, you have a long window here. I'm actually yeah. see. I'm gonna pay pay it forward because uh, after we're done recording here, I'm gonna go watch the Insider that I have not watched. Okay, the Michael Mann movie, Russell Crowe, Al Pacino. Uh, that's been on my list for a long time. I decided I'm gonna take the plunge because that's a longer movie. That's a two and a half hour movie. I'm gonna watch that today. Uh, it was gonna be you know, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but. You know, cause this was a recommendation that I, I mean, not that you hadn't heard of the movie, but I, I you brought spoke it up very strongly that. and it's, it's been on my list for a long time. Um, yeah. I like Michael Mann. 
Uh, I like Russell Crowe and Al Pacino, and I, the story is definitely right up my alley. Yeah, I've nonfiction just been, story. Yeah, yeah, based on a true story about this sort of insider that um, spoke up to sixty Minutes, Mike Wallace, and spoke out about the tobacco industry, which was, I think, one of the first big dominoes to fall uh, in regards to sort of the health and safety of cigarettes and those companies admitting that they knew they were harmful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was, there was a lot of money on the line. Um, switching. So I will say this. I saw this movie when it came out in theaters. Uh, it won the, uh, it won the Academy Award for documentary filmmaking that year, but I, for whatever reason, it popped in my head and I rewatched it last night. And I can't speak more highly of it if you have not seen it. Uh, the documentary is called Free Solo. And it's um, it's a climbing movie, but I will say that it's as much a climbing movie as it is about uh, a movie about sort of humans and relationships. And it follows um, a free solo climber, uh, Alex Henold, who is attempting to climb El Capitan, which is, a I think, the largest peak in uh, Yosemite National Park in California. And it's a phenomenal story. I'm not great with heights. So I have to say, like I watched in the IMAX the first time and like five minutes into this movie, I was like, I'm not sure I can sit through this. And I went to the bathroom and just like unrolled the entire toilet paper roll. And I just sat there for the movie with like toilet paper <laughs> both My hands were like dripping. It's the the way they shoot it. Um, I've seen I've never seen it, but I've seen clips of it. And I've I've heard the filmmaker, I've heard the the climber yeah. interviewed before and it's it's been on my list for a long time my list is long so you see i mean i i gave you crap for the godfather but i've got uh i've got some regrets too i've got some holes to fill and that's on there uh i've seen some clips and it's yeah it's visually captivating yeah. and and uncomfortable and and alex is and i've i'm not sure exactly what it is but he's on the spectrum with uh i think maybe asperger's to some degree so he's He's socially awkward in certain ways. And, but he's, you know, and, and coming from a film background, you know, the moment you turn that camera on, people change. Right. And they're aware that the camera's on them and they sort of put on a little, they're just self aware. And what comes across in the film is that Alex just doesn't. He just sort of is himself, good, bad, or ugly. And at times it's like cringeworthy. His girlfriend's, or this girl who loves him. He, he's just like, yeah, I can acknowledge that you love me. Like he just doesn't say it back. Like these awkward moments, like right in front of a camera. But it's it's such a compelling, he's such a compelling character. And what he's attempting is so unbelievably dangerous. And um, it's never been done. And there's this entire buildup to him trying to do it. Uh, I won't spoil the ending um, because it's one of those movies like right till the end, you're not sure how this is going to play out. But it's if you haven't seen it, it's on uh, where it's on Disney Plus. Okay. Um, but you can also get it through like Amazon Prime. But I think you have to pay for it with Amazon sure. Prime. But it's um, if you're I don't know what your weather's like in Vancouver today. We've had like winter reappear here. We're, uh, we had unbelievable weather for the better part of two weeks, and I believe I kept hearing this from everybody. I, on the I believe course. yeah, I've gotten a tan. I look great. Uh, but I believe. The rain is coming Saturday night and is to stay for over a week. So, I mean, you grew up here, you know, I, this is a conversation I have with uh, friends around this time, especially my friends that I grew up playing Little League with. The season starts in April. 
And there are some nights that are just incredible, like the best baseball nights we ever had. And then in that, even through May, April, May, there are this, oh, it's a rain out because it just decided to start pouring again. And you're not, you're not free until July, but it's, it's that, uh, you know, back and forth where there are some days where it's just like, I don't, I can't believe that this is a real place and it's so nice. And we, we had 20 degree weather last week. And now the rain is back for the foreseeable future. But you know what? I won't trade places with you because uh, it's almost May and you're dealing with snow. Oh, yeah. No, I was on the <laughs> golf course. on. Uh, I went to the golf course Friday, Saturday. Yeah, last week. And then we've had three days of snow this week. So it's what I'm learning about Southern Alberta is that, you know, when you think spring's about to start, it it's just like, nope, winter's still here. <laughs> and then like you'll get like, you know, we get three days of spring and then winter. Just won't I know, leave. So um, I'll do my um, I'll do my media spotlight. Um, it links back to the Super League talk that we had off the top. Uh, a book in 2018. It's called The Club. It's written by Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. They both uh, work for the Wall Street Journal. It was a book or is a book about uh, the founding of the Premier League. So not the founding of English soccer and the FA, but the actual Premier League. And it is fast paced. It covers all the bases it has a little bit to do with with the play on the field but more so with how that play on the field um, has led to the premier league becoming a global power and the people that are invested in it uh, goes back to the start It, it starts the story starts really in the mid to late 80s with the owners realizing or a handful of owners in england realizing that they are not even coming close to maximizing the potential that they have with their product and with their brand. And there's uh, the television aspect of it, uh, the globalization aspect of it, uh, just the pure high uh, degree of, of the economics and the global economics and expanding to China and things like that. Um, if you're at all, if you were at all interested in the behind the scenes, the backroom dealings of how the Super League came to be, there are a ton of parallels with the founding of the Premier League and these issues that are talked about with the Super League and the teams like Manchester United and Arsenal and Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City and Tottenham wanting a bigger slice of the pie. That was happening with the Premier League and was happening with the same teams, you know, specifically Manchester United, Arsenal and Liverpool. They wanted a bigger slice of the pie. Then it's been a complete fight. And there is, it's, it's a really fascinating story. It's really, really well put together. Uh, so I, I read it uh, when it came out. I, I bought it. Uh, actually, no, oh, this sounds good. This is, this is something that I'd be really into. It's great. It's really good. Uh, I reread it this week as the Super League stuff was, was coming out. And I remember really liking it at the time. And it was actually one of those books. I've done, done this every so often where I'll come across a book and and I'll just buy a bunch and give them out to friends and stuff. And if it's around Christmas, then that's a bonus. But uh, I bought, I think, 10 copies and I gave it out to 10, 10 friends who follow the Premier League or soccer fans and the feedback I got from them. And they're all, you know, they, they all don't necessarily know each other and all come at it from a different perspective. The feedback was really positive. And then I thought, OK, I'm going to reread it this week. And remember really liking it at the time, but was still going in with a bit of a blank slate going, okay, well, maybe did I overrate it? Was I just caught up in the moment at the time? And 
had a number of people reach out to me asking if it was worth reading it. And I said yes, and I said that I really enjoyed it, but I also was thinking, I haven't read it in a couple of years now. So I hope that the things that I remember, not just the information, but the pacing, the way that it's put together lives up. And then I reread it and it it did. It's it's very fast paced and, and quick witted. And the details, some of the details are almost too good to be true. Um, so I recommend people to check that out. It's uh, it's worth the read if you haven't read it. And if you do have it uh, in light of the, the news with the Super League is worth revisiting, I think. Uh, so that's the club by Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Yeah. Um, what are you looking forward to this week, Izzy? Well, it's uh, going to be strange, but it's the Academy Awards on Sunday. So, like tomorrow night. Yep. Tomorrow night. Yeah. See, like, had no idea. Yeah. Oscars. Normally, it's in February. Normally, it's just after the Super Bowl. They pushed it back because right. of the pandemic. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to pretend that I've seen a lot of the movies. I've seen a handful of the movies that are that are nominated, um, though I don't... Give me a rundown. Some of the big movies that are like up for, for big okay, awards. Okay, well, so the best picture, uh, these are the eight nominees. They can uh, do 10, but there's only eight this year. The Father, which is a movie with uh, Anthony Hopkins, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari... Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, of those eight, I've only seen two. I've seen Mank. I've seen Trial of Chicago 7, though Minari is high up on my list of uh, movies to watch, and so is Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, I think by all accounts, it's going to be a- an interesting year. Just well, like Nobody saw a movie in a theater this year, right? right? I mean, very, very few people <laughs> did, um, and so... Yeah. There are, it's going to be, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I watched both of those movies because they were Netflix movies. They were available on Netflix. Um, What's the Chicago 7 one about? It's a a movie about a trial that took place uh, in Chicago in the late 60s um, involving, uh, there is um, some riots at the, the National Democratic Convention in Chicago. And, uh, eight men were arrested and then there's it ends up it, there's multiple movies have been made about it it's it's the newest version it's uh written and directed by aaron sorkin it, okay. it's it's worth at least one watch it's it's not my favorite movie of all time but it's it's interesting it's a courtroom drama um that's that's based on a true story um but i'm most interested in uh seeing how they're going to try to put this thing together <laughs> with the, you know, we've seen it with the drafts in yeah. across sports and some of the challenges of doing that. This is not quite the same, but there's elements of it. And Steven Soderbergh, who made one of my favorite movies, Ocean's 11 is the one that is uh, in charge of putting the whole production together. So they, is it going to be a bit more like a virtual, like people, there'll be there's going to be some aspects parties? of that. I believe that they are, it's uh, a union station in Los Angeles. There's going to be kind of the hub for a lot of it, but I, I don't really know what to expect. And even in years where I don't watch a ton of movies, the Oscars was always a thing that was on in my house as a kid. Even like my parents yeah. like movies, but oh, it's a, it's a big movie night. buffs. They just like kind of watching it. And I don't really watch any of the other award shows. I don't, I don't watch the Golden Globes. I don't watch the Emmys. The Academy Awards, for whatever reason, something that I remember as a young kid watching uh, and, you know, 
it being important and then just kind of being a bit of a distraction. And, and uh, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. What about you? Um, I haven't followed the NFL as closely over the last year, but uh, the NFL draft is this Thursday. Uh, there's actually a local connection to a kid that was actually born and grew up in Coquitlam, uh, Javon Holland, who is a safety at the University of Oregon. Um, many are expecting him to be a late first round, probably more likely into the second round uh, draft pick. So I'm kind of curious to see where he goes. Um, of course, most people in the lower mainland will remember uh, Chase Claypool last year went uh, 49th. So he was a second round pick last year to the Steelers uh, and had a you know an exceptional rookie season for them. So looking forward to that. Uh, the first overall pick, obviously the Jacksonville Jaguars, you know, Everyone's expecting them to take Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence. Uh, the New York Jets at number two. Uh, more and more people are starting to think that they're going to take Zach Wilson, the quarterback out of BYU. And the interesting one is the 49ers at the third pick. That'll sort of set up the draft, if you will. Um, they've got a few di directions they can go, but it's widely expected that they'll take a quarterback as well. So um, the NFL always, you know, they were the league that powered through last year with their draft, right, like right in the heart of when COVID was first hitting. Mm -hmm. Um, they were somewhat defiant. Um, I know a lot, it raised a lot of eyebrows, but you look up, you look back on it now, they sort of set the standard of what all the other leagues followed. Uh, and by all accounts, they're going to try some things this week as well. So, so Thursday and, uh, yeah, Javon Holland, uh, a local kid who, whose dad, Robert played in the CFL, played with the BC lions, which is sort of his connection back to, to BC and, and Coquitlam. So, um, I'll be, I'll be curious to see where Javon lands, um, I, an, an Oregon duck and uh, someone I got to see play a couple of years ago when I went down to, to Utah. Yeah. NFL draft, always a spectacle. Uh, even last year, uh, uh, navigating its way through, uh, through the virtual, the remote, um, the pandemic, it's, uh, it's always a big thing. And you're right. The 49ers pick there at three. There's a lot of people talking. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what's great about the NFL draft. It gets, it gets. I mean, they traded for that pick. They traded up. They made a. Yeah. They, they gave up a bunch of assets to Miami to trade up for that pick, and that has increased the intrigue there. Um, but it, uh, I think, better. Well, definitely better than any of the other drafts. Certainly, baseball doesn't. Baseball barely counts, and hockey. Yeah. Uh, the NFL draft. There's such an immediate. There's such an immediacy with the NFL yes. draft. Like those players step right yep. in for the Even most part, especially picks, now with the quarterback. You know, the fifth yeah. round linebackers are starting. Because they are, that's uh, you. You need you need a bunch of players. The turnover in that league is high, and it only takes you know one off the board pick in the first round for all of a sudden everything to unravel and, and more trades to happen. And uh, the, you're always good for at least you know one or two noteworthy stories coming out of an NFL draft, even if it's as stupid as Johnny Manziel falling down the draft board, which uh, yeah. in hindsight, uh, he didn't fall far enough <laughs> based on the way that his yeah. career unfolded. But uh, when the there's all there's you're right. Like there's always really strong narratives and you know, you look at the NFL, that brand and the media that support it and just the, the, the fan interest, the media interest, it makes for a really made-for-TV event. And even amidst the pandemic, they've found ways to pull it off and, and to do it well. So um, be curious. It's in Cleveland this year. Uh, last year, I think they did it in Nashville. Uh, so they're moving it around a little bit. But um, yeah, so that starts Thursday and then goes for a couple of nights because they've got you know multiple rounds. So. All right, that's it for us this week. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to our feed, rate, and review. I've noticed uh, a few rates and reviews have come in over the last couple of weeks as we've been 
podcast exclusive. So we are very appreciative of that. Greatly appreciative. All right. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair.